All right. Well, we'll continue some of these thoughts, uh, specifically focusing uh, for just a few minutes on the idea of the kingship of Jesus. But again, I want to put these thoughts in front of you, the, what I just think of as the four pillars of biblical authority, that God is the creator, that Christ is king, the Holy Spirit is the revealer of God's mind, and mankind is incapable of being his own authority. And uh, I think those are all well-substantiated concepts in Scripture, and uh, our authority, recognition of God's authority here, then is critical to even our own salvation. So I'll come back to this point in Isaiah 52 and verse 7 that we started with the first time. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who announces peace, brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Is part and parcel of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we announce the reign of Jesus, that He is the King, He is the ruler. And the implications of the kingship of Jesus uh, for authority, of course, I think are, are significant. If Jesus is king, then he has the final say into how we ought to please him. And uh, again, the point here is just going to be this, getting this concept of the kingship of Jesus firmly grounded in our minds as, uh, as we proceed. Again, I'm a, a building blocks kind of a person, and uh, this is a, a very important block uh, in our understanding of the authority of God. I want to bear in mind that uh, God had promised a king uh, all along. I think it's that's significant that throughout the Hebrew Scriptures this was a promise God had made. Uh, the Old Testament narrative shows God's concern about bringing about the king through the seed of Abraham. In fact, isn't it interesting, uh, in, in Genesis chapter 1 when God creates uh, male and female in His image, then he says, let them have dominion. That idea of dominion really is the concept of, of rulership or kingship. And so one of the first things in understanding being made in God's image is that mankind has a rulership over the rest of creation, as it were. And of course, uh, there are implications about that. But that starts the basic concept. And then in Genesis 17 and verse 6, God promised Abraham that there would be kings coming from him. Genesis 17, 6, and then in verse 16. And then the promise made in Genesis 49 and verse 10 uh, to Judah that the scepter will not depart from Judah. That's a promise of kingship right there. And then, of course, the, uh, that's going to be carried out uh, through David. We'll come to 2 Samuel chapter 7 uh, here in just a moment. But I think those other passages are significant because when we think about uh, the problem in 1 Samuel 8 when the people are demanding a king, what was wrong with that? I mean, hadn't God promised that there would be kings? Well, yes, He had. In fact, in Deuteronomy 17, He had made the point that the king I want is going to be the king who follows me, the king who writes down my law. God gave guidelines for the kind of king he wanted in Deuteronomy 17, well before they ever demanded a king. So what was wrong with their demand for a king? And I think that's uh, the indication is when they say, we want a king like what? Like the nations around us. That's the problem right there, is that the kind of king they wanted was not the kind of king God wanted. 
And so what he gave them initially was Saul. That ultimately wasn't the kind of king they had to learn that they didn't want. And then he brings David, who's a man after his heart, more the kind of king that he would want. But in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, God promises David down in verse uh, 12, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I'll establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now certainly Solomon is in, in immediate view as you read the rest of that context, but clearly he has in mind an even greater context for bringing out the seed as being the king uh, there. And uh, the prophets looked forward to there being a king, uh, a Davidic king who would rule over his people. Passages like Ezekiel 34 and uh, verse 23 or Ezekiel 37 and verse 24 or even Daniel chapter 7 and verses 13 and 14. Uh, if you'll notice in the New Testament, how often does Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man? And we often will say, in fact, he refers to himself that way more than he does the Son of God. And we often you know, might say something like, well, Son of God is a reference to his divine nature, Son of Man a reference to his human nature. Well, the Son of Man does reference his human nature, but there's more to it than that. Because when he calls himself the Son of Man, he's really doing it in a messianic context that takes you back to Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Here's this Son of Man figure who comes before the Ancient of Days and he receives glory and dominion and power and a kingdom. And so when Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man, he's identifying himself as that Son of Man figure who receives the kingdom. He is the king, basically. And so there's lots of passages that, that show that. And Psalms, we're going to look at uh, Psalm 2 more particularly here in a moment. Uh, but uh, that demonstrates the kingship of Jesus as well. And uh, the New Testament scriptures show that Jesus fulfills what the prophets had long uh, looked forward to. And you recall when Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, he quotes from Joel 2, and then he also quotes from the Psalms, and he, and he quotes David and makes the point that God has raised up this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Christ. And Christ is anointed one. That means He's the King. Uh, to call Him Jesus the Christ, Jesus the anointed one, is to call Him Jesus the King, basically. And so Jesus was raised up to sit on the throne of David. And, and again, I just want to emphasize right here that uh, the, the relationship between kingship and authority is, is quite significant. We're not, we are not, let me stress that, we are not in a bilateral covenant with God where we're on equal terms with Him and we get to call the shots or anything like that. We do not have equal say with what happens here. It's not like we sit at the table with God and say, all right, God, you offer what you're going to do and, and then we'll bring our part to the table over here and show you what we're going to do and uh, we'll make this demand and, and maybe we'll do that. We're not in that kind of a position. This is a unilateral covenant where God is the one who makes the conditions. God is the one who says, this is what I want. We're in the position of being the subjects. We either do what He wants or we don't. That's bottom line. We either listen to Him or we don't. And all permission, all authority is going to come from Him. A king rules his kingdom. That's the idea. And uh, dominion belongs to Him, and He is seated on the throne. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1, 20 through 23 tell us 
that Jesus is seated on the throne far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but in the one to come. All things are said to be in subjection under His feet, and He is head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. There is no limit to the authority of God. So as, as King, He is the head of the body. Again, Colossians 1, 15 through 18, stresses the preeminence of Jesus Christ over all things. He is the firstborn over all creation. That means He's preeminent over all creation. And He is the head of the church, according to verse 18. He completely rules over His kingdom. And as Lord, He is our master. He is our owner. He is our Lord. And, and you know, Peter says we've got to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. First uh, Peter 3 and verse 15. And again, authority begins with one who has the right to speak and expect others to listen. It's grounded in the idea that uh, there is someone rightfully in charge who has the uh, right to, to call the shots. And in Scripture, we've, we've stressed that God is that ultimate authority. But let's, let's think a little bit more about the kingship of Jesus now by looking at Psalm 2. And we'll take a brief look here at this uh, wonderful psalm. It's a powerful uh, passage. Psalm 2. It's what is known as a royal psalm because it talks about uh, God's king. And uh, he speaks here about how the enemies of God have tried to cast off the kingship of God. Beginning in verse 1, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take their counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then He'll speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son so that you not, He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. I want you to notice how Psalm 2 picks up on the theme of Psalm 1. They actually go together really well uh, and kind of serve as an introduction to the whole book of Psalms, uh, really. And, uh, for example, Psalm 1 and verse 1, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And then Psalm 2 and verse 12, How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Kind of serves like uh, bookends, uh, the concept of being blessed uh, by God when you follow uh, what uh, His will is. And um, we, in, in the terms of Psalm 1 and verse 1 uh, are repeated in Psalm 2. I want you to notice how uh, it says there that, uh, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. But when you drop down in verse 2 of Psalm 2, the kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers take counsel together. 
What's he saying in, in, in Psalm 1 and verse 1? How blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So some of the, the terms, at least, or the ideas, if not identical terms, are being repeated in Psalm 2. And what's happening is, in Psalm 1, really this concept of personal righteousness before God. Uh, the, the one who loves God, the one who delights in the law of the Lord. And then in Psalm 2, that's carried to the national level. The kings and the nations who try to cast off the fetters of God. In Psalm 1, it's the wicked who are like chaff and the wind drives them away. And so you have these connections, I think, between uh, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 that kind of show us uh, that the, the truly blessed are those who submit themselves to the rule of God and they love His Word and they refuse to take their stand with the wicked. In fact, I think it's interesting here. His delight is in the law of the Lord. In His law He meditates day and night, Psalm 1 and verse 2. And that word for meditate uh, is really this, this idea of uh, groaning for something. You, you long for something so much that you groan for it, you long for it. And that's the same word used in Psalm 2 and verse 1. It's, it's a different English word probably in your, in your version. But when it says the peoples are devising a, grain, a, a, a vain thing, it's the idea that they're, it's like they're groaning or finding ways to, to rebel against God. What you see here are attitude differences. Someone who delights in God and His Word versus someone who essentially delights in rebelling against God and His Word. And so Psalm 1 and 2 uh, show both sides of, of that coin, one from a personal level, one from more of a national uh, kind of a level. The implication should be plain, and that is if we want to be blessed, we will submit ourselves to the rule of God. Uh, and again, that rule or the kingdom of God is paramount here. And I want to think about two places in the New Testament that I, that I hope will sufficiently demonstrate what we're talking about here. Uh, first, in Acts the fourth chapter, Acts the fourth chapter, Peter and John have been uh, preaching the gospel and proclaiming the resurrection and making the point that there is salvation and no, no one else, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then they're told, we don't want you preaching this. And they're threatened with persecution. And that's going to be carried out further in chapter 5. But after the threats and the apostles are released there, Peter and John, they go back to their companions in verse 23. And uh, they, they hear this, they report what happens. And then verse 24 says, When they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the nations or the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ, against His anointed one. So here in the prayer, they refer back to Psalm 2. But now instead of applying the wicked mentality to the Gentiles, they apply it to the Jewish rulers who are rejecting Jesus. You see, God had responded to the wicked people by sending a righteous king, and they rebelled and they rejected. Well, this is carried forward even further when God sends Jesus Christ to be the king, and what do they do to Him? But they reject Him as well. And so essentially, by rejecting Christ's rule... 
They have rejected the rule of God. They have rejected the kingdom of God. And how ironic that Psalm 2 would come to be applied to Jewish rulers who were supposed to be looking for that kingdom, who were supposed to believe in that. They did indeed, in this case, take their stand with wickedness in the rejection of Jesus Christ as their king. Second, uh, we turn over to Acts 13. Paul quotes from Psalm 2 in his sermon, and this uh, particularly is in verses 32 uh, and following. We preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled the promise to our children in that He raised up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. And that's something that Peter uh, had quoted uh, as well from the Psalms. David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. He whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which he could not be freed through the law of Moses. All right, so so Paul quotes uh, from Psalm 2 here, and the good news concerning the promise of Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In that, he says, he raised up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm. So the the point I want you to see here, this this concept, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's what what Paul quotes here. Now I realize that uh, just hearing it without a context, we might think, well, isn't this talking about maybe the birth of Christ? Because we usually think of this idea of, you know, a father begets a son or something like that. So it's the birth of Jesus. Well, that's not what it's talking about here, though. Because what Paul says is, this is fulfilled in the resurrection. That it's the resurrection in which God says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It's, it's kind of like the idea of, of God bringing his king out and showing him to the people and saying, this is your king. And that's the event that's being referenced right here. So it's not a reference to the origin of Jesus or the birth of Jesus. Uh, of course, Jesus was not created, but it's, it's not speaking through his, about His birth through Mary either. But a royal description, a royal description of God bringing out the King, proclaiming Him to be the one that He is sending, and uh, you know, what event would show such power but the resurrection? And uh, that's why Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 make the point that He's declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And so this is the power of God being shown to the people. This is the kingdom of God being shown to the people. Peter preached the same message again in Acts 2, 29 through 36, that Jesus was raised up, exalted to the right hand of God as both Lord and Christ. So God has made known His love through the death of Jesus, Romans 5 and verse 8. God demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And God has made known His rule by raising Jesus from the dead, demonstrating His rule many times and and in many ways. But the resurrection is the most powerful of all. Now here's the thing. By the time you get to the end of the psalm, 
Well, what's interesting about uh, this psalm, I think, is the fact you know, it's talking about, well, God may show His anger and, and all of that, but the interesting thing is God did show His justice through the death of Jesus Christ and then offer salvation to the very ones who had rejected Him. So this is a great demonstration of His love for people, His grace toward people. But when he says in verse 12, do homage to the Son, other translations will probably say something like this, kiss the Son. Because literally that's what it's saying, kiss the Son. Pay homage. Give Him the reverence and the respect and the honor that is due Him. And that's uh, what Jesus mirrors in John chapter 5 after Jesus had been performing miracles on the Sabbath and He was challenged about that and He says, my father has been working until now and I have been working. And they said, well, you're declaring yourself to be equal with God. You notice Jesus never said, oh, no, you got me wrong. In fact, he takes it a step further and in verses 23 and 24 says, you need to honor the son even as you honor the father. If you're going to honor God the father, you need to honor God the son. And uh, he's the king. He's the one we need to show the reverence and respect and honor, pay homage to Him, kiss the Son. Now I want to move from that. Again, that's, that's kind of a brief overview of that, but um, I want to think for just a, a few minutes here about what it means then to follow the example of Jesus. Because if we're going to say, is Jesus is our King, then are we not saying by that, that that we intend to follow Him? We intend to submit ourselves to His will. And, uh, you know, sometimes people will say something like, well, you know, we don't need to pay that much attention to what others said. We just need to listen to Jesus. Um, and, and some of you might remember uh, years ago the, uh, what, the, the acronym WWJD, What Would Jesus Do? You know, and it was on jewelry and on bumper stickers and and all of that, and, and, and that's fine, you know, I mean, what would Jesus do? But the thing is, you can't really know what Jesus would do unless you first know what He did, unless you first understand His attitude about that. We can't say, what would Jesus do, and then make up whatever we want to say He did. You know, we, we've got to look at His attitude and see if we're going to follow His example, then I want to know what His example really is. And how does that help us understand what it means to follow the authority of God? Because again, your God reigns is, is critical here. So following the example of Jesus means we're going to take on the attitude uh, that Jesus had. I think you know, Paul expressed it in, in Philippians 2 and verse 5, have this mind in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, and then demonstrates the servanthood. Uh, he, he took on the form of a servant and gave his life uh, for others. And Paul's point there is that's exactly what we need to be doing. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit with humility of mind. Uh, think of others as more important than yourselves and so forth. And, and that's following the mind, the attitude that Jesus Christ had. But then I think about statements like this. John chapter 4 and verse 34, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. My food is to do the will of God. Is that our attitude? That's what I want to eat up. You know, that's what I want to take in, is to do the will of God. Or 
I can do nothing on my own, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. John 5 and verse 30. Jesus did not come to do His own thing. He didn't come to this earth to say, I'm going to exercise some power independent of the Father and the Spirit. He came to do the will of God, completely do the will of God. But what I want you to see here is just this attitude. I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. So if we're going to follow the example of Jesus, should that not be our attitude? I seek not my will, but the will of God, the will of the Father, the will of the one who sent. John 8 and verse 29, He has not left me alone. He's talking about the Father there. For I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Now you might say, well, that, that uh, knocks me out. <laughs> and, and, and I get that. You know, Jesus also taught in Matthew 5, 44, 45, that, you know, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But what we need to see there is what we have is a perfect standard. You know, what the Lord has done is set before us a standard that is perfect. And, and would we really want it any other way? I mean, if He put before us an imperfect standard, wouldn't we say, well, why would I want to follow an imperfect standard? He's given us a perfect standard. But again, the attitude that simply says, I'm going to do my best, I'm going to do everything I can to please God. That's really the point uh, that I'm making here. And of course, in Luke 22 and verse 42, as He's in the garden praying, what does he pray? Not my will, but yours be done. Or in the prayer of Matthew 6 and verse 10, your will be done. And there are many other passages then that we could look at to see the same mentality, the same attitude that is carried out throughout Scripture. Hebrews 11 and verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please Him. And, uh, you know, yes, we emphasize faith. Faith is absolutely necessary there. But to do what? To do what we want to do? No, it's faith to please Him. That's what we're after here, faith to please God. Or in, uh, well, Romans 8 and verse 8, which simply says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's interesting because he's not saying that if you have a body of flesh you can't please God. Flesh is a, is a mindset there. Flesh is a mentality. Flesh is, is a carnal kind of way of thinking. And as long as you're in that mode of thinking, it's impossible to please God. But his whole point is, we want to please God. And if we want to please God, we're going to listen to the Spirit. The Spirit is the revealer of the mind of God. We need to listen to what the Spirit says. We need to follow the works and the, and the ways of the Spirit. And so that the, those contrasts are there to demonstrate that our goal, our attitude here, is to be pleasing to God. Galatians 5 and verse 17. Think about the same, the same idea of flesh and spirit uh, contrast is at work there. But Galatians 5 and verse 17 the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. So once again, that concept, so that you may not do the things that you please. That you recognize that contrast between the flesh and spirit and seek to follow the spirit. Why? So that you're not doing what you want to do, but you're doing what God wants you to do. 
This is following the example of Jesus. This is following the authority of God. We have as our ambition, Paul said, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Or I like what he says in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 4. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 4. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. So what are we allowing ourselves to get entangled in? We get entangled in our own will. We get entangled in the ways of the world. He says, if you have been enlisted by the Lord as a soldier of Christ, then you need to be intending to please the one who enlisted you. Oh, many other passages. Colossians 1 and verse 10, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects. Or Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Colossians 3, 23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. And notice this statement. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And I'll tell you, that ought to change everything in our lives right there. Everything. Because what we do, we do it for the Lord. And this isn't just, this isn't just talking about when we assemble as a church. Everything that you do is for the Lord. Think about that. I used to tell students, look, look you know, you're not writing papers for me. Uh, you'll get a grade, but you're not writing them for you're writing them for the Lord. You're not doing the things that you're doing here just for you. When you go to work, you're going to be the best worker you can be. Why? Because you're not doing it for your boss, you're doing it for the Lord. You may think, well, my boss isn't looking, I can get away with this, get away with that. But you're doing this for the Lord. Why? It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. He's the King. He reigns over every facet of our lives. That's the idea. So we end this simply by asking these two questions. Whose will am I seeking? And whose example am I following? And I want you to see that this is a really important part of our understanding of the authority of God, the kingship of Jesus, and what it means to follow His example and understand that He is the one who is our Lord. So we'll continue this, uh, these thoughts tomorrow night, but uh, we're going to sing a song here in just a moment. If you would take your songbooks out and let's get prepared to do that. And I would encourage you tonight uh, simply to think about your relationship with the Lord, where you stand. Ask yourself again, whose will am I seeking and whose example Am I following and realize that the example of Jesus is set before us is a perfect example? And we all realize when we think about the perfect example of Jesus or the perfect standard of God that we all fall short of that. And the Lord offers grace. The Lord offers mercy and forgiveness. And He's the one who has the right to do it. It's His authority by which He offers that mercy. And it's by the authority of Jesus Christ that He would say, your sins 
are forgiven. But maybe tonight you find yourself in a position that you want to respond somehow to that, whether through baptism or uh, help in the prayers of this group. Uh, let's stand as we sing the song.